Hello and, w- and welcome to another episode of Cripple Stump. And today I'll be in com- my name is Shubaz Mohammed, and today I'll be in conversation with. Could you please introduce yourself? I can, Lowry Evans. And um, what do you do, Lawrence? Uh, I'm an artist. I live in Manchester. And uh, <laughs> me and you do know each other, yeah? <laughs> and I'm your friend. Just so yeah. people don't think we're, we're fucking strangers, you know? I know everybody's a stranger these days, but yeah. we, we go way back. And I, ju- I just thought it would be... Laurie's lived a very interesting life, I would say. And I, I just thought, as an artist and as a person, obviously. So I just thought it'd be a, an interesting conversation for us to have and and to, to, to generally see what you've been up to and why you get up to it in the first place. Um, yeah. Yeah, so could I start with... Asking you a really easy question. Why are you an artist? Um, you shouldn't have said it was an easy question. <laughs> uh, why? I'm an artist because I make things. I've always made things. Um, it feels, sometimes it feels really simple. It's that simple. If you make art, you're an artist and anyone can make art. I, I think that's why. Yeah. Um, and then for a certain time, I've been getting paid to do that as well, which uh, means that I don't know actually what difference that makes. Uh, I think sometimes it is a good thing. Sometimes it um, is, it's not always a good thing. Because for me as an artist, and I consider myself to be an artist of a different kind, and... Uh, for me, as an artist, for me, it's important because it makes, you know, it gives me an opportunity to get my, to have my voice heard and to make a mark or to make, as I always say, to make a stain, you know. Yeah. So to make any kind of mark, to, I suppose, to, inv- to prove to myself my distance is is valid mm-hmm. for me. For me, it's never about you know uh, you know it's never been about making a living or making money from it. Because if I can do that, great. But uh, that's not never the driving factor, and I know it isn't for you either. But I'm just saying that you know. It's different for everyone, and the reason why you do it is perhaps the similar, similar to mine, or you know, different because we're different people. But the motivations are still, the impulses are still kind of the same. Yeah. Would you agree? I, I, w- I would agree, and I think uh, it does come down to this idea of leaving a mark in some, in a political way, I guess which I don't know if that's how you feel about that in a personal way. I think in some, sometimes in a kind of almost melancholic way, like the 
I've always been interested in how ephemeral we are and how miraculous that we're here at all is. So, yeah. so to leave a little mark behind, it feels like a massive thing to do and also something completely insignificant like a grain of sand. Yeah, because like, as, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but uh, as an artist, you kind of think you're really relevant and you're kind of insignificant at the same time. And being, I know everybody's kind of aware of that anyway, but being an artist, I kind of think you're kind of, we're kind of confronted with that every day, you know, more so, I would say. Confronted yeah. with what, exactly, sorry? The, the contradiction of, like, it being really important and really insignificant at the same time, you know? Yeah. I think it's a contradiction that it hits you in the face. That's what yeah. I experienced anyway. Me too. It's kind of perverse sometimes. It's like, why? Why are we drawn to do this thing that in the same breath we can love it and think it's a genius thing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> or this could just be me. And um and then in the in the same thought I think this is shit and this is worthless and um uh, yeah, so it, you're right. I think that's how my experience as well. And and it's also the um I wonder if that connects to an idea becoming real in some way. So ideas are perfect aren't they because they don't exist yeah and the, the, as concepts they're so beautiful in every way in in their uniqueness and uh, newness and then when you pull them out uh, however we do that in whatever creative process or medium it's you're confronted with the the like oh god I've done this this isn't like the idea this is the real thing and yeah. I think the hardest thing sometimes is to stay in love with it and let yeah. it not be perfect, but at least it exists. Because, because wouldn't you kind of say it in that sense? I know it might sound a bit morbid or a bit fucked up, I don't know, but the minute something exists, it kind of dies because cause it, it no longer resides in the brain in the head and in the imagination, you've kind of shut it out or you've kind of like brought it to life. But as soon as something's brought to life, it means it's going to die soon, if you get yeah, what I mean. I do. I, I think that's why, for me, that that thing that you shit out yeah. um, is, is then <laughs> received by other people and that's when art is exciting and it lives on. I think it, it, once you share it, whatever it is, it lives in outside of you. So, yeah, it's true. There's something of the mortality of it and the, the, its creation is its death whenever we choose to finish it. But I, I feel like it's alive somewhere else. It's alive in someone else or alive with the possibility of meeting someone else. And a seamless... Transition from that to, to this question uh, is when I, one of the times I first became aware of your existence was the the the, the band Hot Pants Romance. Yeah. And could you talk a bit about that and how that that fits into 
the artistic expression looking back on it now yeah so we had the name for the band hot pants romance yeah. in about 2002 and we liked it that's one of those things we loved the idea of the band but we didn't really know how to play anything or what that really meant and um we did a weird open mic in 2002 in is it called Puna now and um do you remember that place that was open yeah. on is it cooper street and um uh and then and then we never did anything again well for two years until somebody because the also the idea of the band hot pants romance which is with me kate armitage and laura skilbeck we wanted to play one gig a year on valentine's day and so it was very much like an idea of a band we weren't interested in doing anything else and then one valentine's day in 2005 i got a call on valentine's day morning as well as loads of valentine's cards of course and a band had pulled out from an anti-Valentine's gig that night. And they said, oh, do you still have that band um, that only plays on Valentine's Day? Because we've got a slot. And I said, yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> and then I called Kate and Laura and we met in a basement on Furnace Road in Bellafield, which I think you know about as well. And we, we did we write a song? I can't remember. We, we've learned a couple of covers, including I Want to Be Your Boyfriend by the Ramones. And we ran down to the Tiger Lounge and we played our first gig. Um, and then from there, we started um, playing a lot more than Valentine's Day. And we've that was, yeah, over 15 years ago. And then other things have happened. Um, we've been doing other things. So the band has taken a bit of a back seat, but... Shabazz, I can give you a bit of an exclusive. We're having a band practice next week. And it's the first time in a couple of years that we will be in a practice room together. Um, wow. Yeah. So it's a really exciting uh, time. And I, I feel like I'll always be in the band, even if we don't play. Yeah. Like it's the idea of it. And I, I think it's informed a lot of my ideas um, just from being a, 20 year old in a punk band playing around um making up songs I think there's so much to be said and learned from that DIY punk ethos that would be great in uh, you know in a lot of the places that I work or where wherever I make art in so I think it's a way to live or a way to operate as well yeah oh, well well just to reiterate that was an exclusive uh, hot pants romance. Uh, yeah. Not saying they're going to tour, and not saying they're going to do a gig, but they're just doing a band practice. So <laughs> yeah, big headline. We're gonna and we never practice. <laughs> like everyone, whenever we play, people you know, would be like, but, "You formed today." But that's the kind of shit I want people to find out about on Cripple Stomp. You know, yeah, things that. And news, but aren't quite news, and that are real, but aren't quite real at the same time. So yeah. you know, it's kind of perfect, really, for for what we're trying to do here. Yeah. And uh, you know, so we can continue this roller coaster of a conversation. Mm. What what would you? Uh, how would you react to to Pussy Riot? in relation to Hot Band's romance? 
And what do you think? What do you think of what they're doing or um, what they did? Uh, I think they're amazing. I mean, <laughs> they went to prison. They, you know, yes. for what they believed in and um, for what they were doing. Uh, I think they're incredible. I saw them play actually in Brazil a couple of years ago, and I, and I, I liked the whole. I, I liked the music. I liked the aesthetic. Yeah, I think they're raw. I think they're on this like front line, you know. And yeah, yeah I think they're incredible. Because when I came across them, they straight away put me in mind of Hot Pants Romance and that kind of freedom, freedom of expression, mm. if you will. And it just made me think of your band because it's like I know they're slightly they're different and things, but the, for me, the ethos is kind of the similar, if not the same. You know, yeah. I mean, the motivations might be might be slightly different. You know, because of a different context. But to me, the, the, they're the same kind of thing. Because of that raw kind of emotional expression, if you will. Yeah. Um, yeah um and I guess like in a really visual way three women playing loud songs or you know we're both that but yeah I think the the challenges and the that kind of oppression that they were working in is obviously different to us um but yeah I think there is this energy and it's almost like the shitter it gets, the louder we'll play. Yeah. I, I like that kind of idea. Because it, it, it does seem to be their ethos. Shabazz? Yeah? Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, so you talked about the first time that we met was around the time that it was Hot Pants Romance. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking, um, when did I first meet you? And I think I was aware of you because we were at university at the same time. Yeah. You were studying film and I was yeah. studying art. Yeah. And and I was thinking of your work and that is possibly a time around 2005 yeah. that we met was in your film that you made, yeah. Wheels on Fire. Yeah, that still gets watched on, on YouTube by a few people. And... Um, the more the more people I get to uh, that talk to me about it, they're always like, "That's still your best film work," you know. And it's like that's good and bad at the same time. <laughs> Again, it's like shit. I'm really happy that you really like it, <laughs> but what does it say about me? Because now it's like I haven't kind of like. <laughs> Grown in a sense, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy that uh, I don't know if you watched it uh, recently or anything, but it, it still holds up. And I don't want anybody to think that I just sit there and just watch my own film over and over again. But whenever people ask me about what I've done and stuff, that 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 is always a film I I. I tell them about, and uh, they always seem to seem to really like it. I mean, 
one of the uh, feedbacks I got many years later when I was doing another course well, and I wasn't getting on with this guy uh, uh, and he was in my group and stuff and he watched that film and he looked at me and go, hi, I understand you a lot better now. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> but, you know, uh, and I didn't, didn't push it because I didn't want to, like, make it about me. Or, you know, I wanted him to have his own experience and for that to be that. And if he's learned something about me, then he's learned something about me. Or if he hasn't, he hasn't. But the person said to me, that film, to me, seems like a very personal film. And I didn't think of it at the time. But yeah, maybe it is. But again, that was that very DIY kind of, like, do-it-yourself kind of filmmaking, guerrilla filmmaking. For example, I suppose I can say this now because it, it's many, many years later, but we filmed Incognito in Blackpool, Pleasure Beach, without getting any permission. You know, and we managed to get away with it. Well, I've done so far. I'm hoping that years later nobody will. Ah, you, you, we've got proof that you did. You did this now, but um, yeah, like I say, that that film and you and Laura being in that film. You know, <laughs> let's be honest. Me and you have still had a gripe with that film. Like, uh, many years later, when I've said you were meant to be in a bunny outfit and you just had bunny ears, and that still irks me to this day. We'll have to do a sequel. Yeah, and hopefully... Yeah, we'll have to get another chair, though. That chair's long dead. Does that answer your question? Was that a waffle? I don't know. Um, I've not watched it in years, so... Um, I'm not saying you should, I'm just... Saying that, yeah, it's still on YouTube. Uh, I'd uh, like to see it. And yeah, I mean, and it's still as a story, it still holds up, which is good and bad, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it was just done. But it just shows you what you can do on zero budget, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. yeah. Back in those days, you used to make a lot of films. What happened to your film career? <laughs> well, weirdly, in lockdown, I've started to do some little films again. But but yeah, in this kind of yeah DIY way, it, there's something about it that feels so raw that what you might not have in perfection, you have in this energy and it's made. And it's um, that somehow has always captivated me more than something that's polished or for want of a better word, perfect. So I, I, and I, and maybe being involved in so many mad projects or collaborations like Wheels on Fire, mm. it's, it's almost like it's the joy of doing it that is the draw for me as well. What project of yours I was told about, I don't know if you want me to know this or not, but one of them I was told about was when you did one with a giant smelly fish, could you tell us about that? <laughs> yeah. Um, in 2018, I danced naked with a 
dead fish, the biggest dead fish I could get my hands on in Smithfield's Market in East Manchester. Yeah. So, yeah, what I didn't realise, so if anyone wants to do that, if you want to do it, um, the fish is the fisherman's day off on a Sunday. So actually Monday morning is a very bad day to go down to the fish market because they don't have loads of new stuff in. A much better day would be Tuesday. But I'd already said I'm doing this performance, yeah. um, which was with uh, Kate from the band's other band, Sippy Cup, with Stuart. And um, and they were going to play the music. And it was in this dark room, which was an old fridge unit. And I went with filmmaker Heather Glassard. We went to the market. I've got the biggest fish, which I think was a hake from the Atlantic Ocean, mm. come from Cornwall had sharp teeth yeah. and um, and then I carried it in my arms from the market to Islington Mill where mm. I was at the time and um, and then that night in the dark with the music and this flash of light every maybe 15 minutes I danced with the fish and what I didn't know would happen is the scales come off on you they look so I was sort of covered in these weird like contact lenses from them and it was cold and it stunk and it was where I think I was at at the time I felt that's how I felt okay so is that how the idea came about then you wanted to have an you think subconsciously you wanted to have an expression of how an outwardly expression of how you felt intuitively yeah yeah I think um, it usually comes from that place, something that happens to me, then I try and do it, uh, put it, try and put it out there to see if anyone else knows what I mean. Because sometimes we don't get, we just get these, uh, you know, it's, you know what it's like, these perfect lives that are around us, all the marketing and it's sold to us as truth and the internet and the lies of it all and and sometimes you just are left with a massive dead fish that um you've you've got to carry and and dance with yeah yeah i know what you mean but our audience doesn't so maybe doesn't so it's always good for them to hear it but what i made me think was like through doing that do you do you feel like it's kind of exercised something within you once you've done it, or do you, or made you understand the issue more, or made you come to peace with something? Basically, do you think it's therapeutic, or, or does it have that kind of consequence? Or, you know, have you ever come across that? Yeah, I, I'm always a bit like resistant of the word therapeutic somehow. Because I think, well, good for you, but don't waste anyone else's yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I do think through doing it, you look, you it reveals a lot. And and like you were saying with your film, that after someone watched it, they said, "Oh, I learned a lot about you," or "I found it a very personal yeah. film." You, that might not have been your intention at the time, but it's only through its existence could you consider it in other ways and learn yeah. new things. Yeah, and I suppose another way of me putting it, to avoid the word therapeutic as well, is do you feel like it's shedding a, a, a layer of skin or do you, do 
he feel like it's shedding them scales, you know? Yeah, and and sometimes, yeah, I think so. Somehow it's a, a shedding or a scaling. Mm. Yeah, and and I think sometimes if you, uh, that kind of, you show, I'll show you mine if you show me yours thing. Yeah. I think if if you allow people next to your, to you without your armour on, it is quite, it's a disarming thing and it perhaps allows us to get a little bit closer than real life lets us. And obviously there's a lot of responsibility that comes around that and other things, but I think it's in its most brutal, simplest way, it's a bit like, this is me, who are you? It's a, yeah. it's a way of doing that. It's like showing your card, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Going, I'll show you mind if like you said, I'll show you mind if you you show me yours. And yeah. But it relies on other for me it relies on other people being as honest with people with themselves and with other people as well, you know? Yeah. And not everything's gonna do the same thing for everyone. No. So so yeah, yeah I I guess it's you the only thing you can really um, have any form of control over is your own uh, output or your own feelings or your own thoughts so if you look after them the more meticulous you are with yourself I find m- more people it weirdly makes other people do that as well because you can't control what somebody's reaction might be they might be like Ugh, or that's you know there's a million reactions um, yeah you, you can't even control your own reaction no because really? I may see something, I may assume that I'm going to react in a certain way, and then I end up reacting in a completely different way. So you know, the element of control is is something we don't have any control over. And the idea for me is that people want to control everything. It's kind of the impossible task, really, <laughs> because it's like, how can we control anything? Essentially, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, m- moving on to your life abroad now, could you tell us a bit about your your artistic experience while living in Brazil? Uh, yeah, I can. So um, I I made a show. So I I kind of I was going out with somebody that was Brazilian, yeah, um, which was the original connection. So. I guess the first few years, my contact with Brazil was really part of this long distance relationship that every time felt like the last time because it felt impossible, you know, how do you navigate a relationship across the world? I mean, everyone's doing that now. So everyone's kind of long distance now. Uh, And then after, and I was lucky because they were um, a theatre maker in Sao Paulo, like me. So there was this, I was the Sao Paulo that I was experiencing was this like incredible artistic community that was really open to me. I was seeing really interesting performances or weird things or loads of people I knew were making prolifically and uh, in all different ways. So, so I really got this, I felt like I snuck into the back door somehow. I didn't feel like an outsider ever there. And then through that, I met some friends, and one of those is, a, a, you know, become a massive friend to me, Marta Kispehani, and she 
invited me to make a performance about Rosa Luxemburg, the socialist activist thinker uh, from about 100 years ago in Germany. And through looking at Rosa's life, we looked at Brazilian politics that was unfolding and has been, well, it always has been kind of um, very dramatic and extreme in many ways. So it was a way to talk about now and figure that out, but using this vehicle of a past figure to look at that. And we're quite interested in the personal and the political. How do you live through a movement? Um, And then from from that, that show ended up touring a lot, doing lots of workshops, traveling around Brazil. And then we made a new piece of work, uh, Revolta Lilith. And then it connected me with Colachiva Ocupação, who made When It Breaks It Burns. And in the most recent exchange, they came over from Brazil in 2019 and in 2020, just before the pandemic, to perform their amazing show, When It Breaks It Burns. So it's, that's like a really, a real kind yeah. of overview. Yeah. Um, I just think it, it's interesting for people around the world to get an idea of what it's like somewhere far flung the other side of the world as if it as if it were, you know. In terms of the art scene over there, uh, how would you compare it to, to the UK? Um, your experience of it? My experience of it, um and yeah, so it's very much my experience, but I found there was a lot more collectives going on in the city and really general thing like observations but my experience was uh, a lot of people working jobs and then going to make something in a studio or then going to be part of a class and learn something or uh, write a show or there's um it feels like the days are sort of longer or fuller there uh so there's a lot of like this kind of productivity, which I don't mean in a, like, it's not about the end product, but there's this sense of kind of creation and agitation in the city. And I wonder if it's because there's just so many people there. And it's also a lot slower to move around because it's a massive city, but it's very condensed. So it's quite hard to get anywhere in a hurry. And and maybe you're aware of so many bodies around or something, it kind of creates this this energy and all these um possibilities i think there's i there's a lot of stuff that happens on the street which i really like and uh because there's uh, graffiti isn't illegal in sao paulo okay and and I, it's still the same but i i hope it doesn't change there's a law that you there can be no billboards in sao paulo so there's none of that visual pollution of marketing really um, yeah and you don't notice it until you suddenly leave the city and go on any of the roads out to the airport or wherever, and then you're bombarded with those things. So there is a sense that, and and perhaps this is my privilege, you know, is coming in and out of a city with ease um, around my own projects. But there's definitely, I felt a sense of freedom with that, that the street is anyone's almost like a playground whereas I think here the restrictions health and safety the police and security control of public space and private spaces that look like public spaces that 
there's a lot more red tape and a lot more um like you were talking about those monitoring forms for example or permissions for being in people's films i think we're all more aware of that now but yeah. I, I think that kind of um spirit where you're allowed to do what you want is really exciting yeah. and then lastly i think not coming from a place gives you this everything is new everything is exciting even like a bus ticket or it it really makes the sim simple things quite eventful or exciting and I, I think that's always been quite rich um as an artist like feeling like an alien in some ways yeah that, that's very interesting what you heard you saying about the the uh, outside world and like the just the public spaces because we don't really realise it, but in, in the UK now, a lot of places are private land. And the minute you, if you did something on a, a university land or just near home, there, there's private security forces keeping an eye out. You can't literally do anything. And, you know, you don't realise it until you come up against it and then then when you come up against it, you're like, oh, you just accept it and you just think, oh, that's just not something I can do. And until you just mentioned it there, I didn't really think about it, but it's quite quite a big thing, really. Mm. Because it, psychologically, it's quite important, isn't it? Because the if you just think, oh, I can't just do anything I want on the street, even if you don't want to, the fact that you can't has, has an effect, doesn't it? Yeah. And like we have all this CCTV here and yeah. all of it. It's very like kind of in one sense repressive and um, kind of kills spontaneity. And, and I think in this country, we uh, like one thing I remember with some Brazilian friends and I was explaining uh how to buy a train ticket and I said oh if you book in advance it's cheaper and also if you travel after 10 o'clock it's cheaper and just explaining the concept of peak and off-peak times which they don't have on their transport system was like mind-blowing and and then it just made you think well we do really favor order and advance booking and like not going at certain times and you know, actually that isn't conducive to how a lot of us live and it's rewarding people that know what they're doing in three weeks' time compared to people that don't, which I don't know if it connects this sense of order and control that's that's yeah. quite strong in a yeah. in a way that's like, oh, no, we're fair, fair and free society. Yeah, no, no, but it's, uh, you know, it's something to reflect on, I think, because, you know, until you, like, like you said it there, until you said it, uh, you know it's there, but you don't really realise it and connect the dots and you don't think, well, actually, we are kind of, like, in a way, like, a way oppressed, but because they don't, we're not oppressed, you know? <laughs> Whereas somewhere like Brazil, probably, they aren't told that they're not oppressed, you know? But... They, they truly are oppressed. But there's also, you know, politically it's a bit volatile as well, isn't it? Yeah. 
So did were you there during that time? During um, the Bolsonaro time? Yeah, I've, so I first went out to Brazil at the very end of 2009 and 10. So I, it's been an eventful 12 years seeing the the people, the presidents even, is this incredible sequence of Lula and then Dilma, the first female president of Brazil um, from the Workers' Party. And then they were impeached. You know, there was a coup and... Um, and then if a president is taken out of power, it's a, a, a candidate from the other party that is put, put in place. So effectively, the opponent wins uh, without any democratic vote. And um, and then Lula was imprisoned and then Bolsonaro has been voted in. Uh, yeah, and that's just the presidents. And the there's been a lot of unrest and protest and hope and optimism and and you know fascism and and now what's happening within the pandemic is genocide being committed you know um yeah. the government is killing its people and often the people that voted for them you know yeah yeah which yeah seems kind of kind of even i know it's obvious but it seems really really dark how how can this be be happening, you kind of think like so many people, like so many like, right wing governments around the world, you kind of think, okay, there might be right wing, or this, that, or the other, but there'll be a cut off point from, from which they won't go beyond. And you, I, well, maybe I was naive, but I was kind of thinking, as soon as hundreds of thousands of people start dying, you know, everything, you know, they'll come to their kind of senses and they're like, no, 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 we can have our political views, but we will save lives. And it's the ultimate thing, in my opinion, a government has to do. And, and for them to even be able to cross that line without even a hiccup, is kind of mind blowing to me. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting that a lot of the what we don't see on the news, and I think this is true of here as well, is the protests, the people on the street, the um, the grassroots movements are really strong. Also, the opposition is strong, but I think that's less told and also doesn't play into the the structures of power particularly. But that has definitely made changes, and and now. Um, I mean, in Brazil, anyway, the uh, Lula has been uh, has not only come out of prison, but been is it exonerated when somebody's yeah. uh, when they apologise to them and yeah. should have never been imprisoned and can be up for election. And he was a very popular president. So yeah, I, yeah it's kind of of these epic proportions. These extremes uh, of the left and the right will be the next candidates. But following on from what you said, like, how do you see that? Because I think it's a very extreme, hot version of what we see around us here in the UK and yeah. in Europe and in America. Like, you know, 10 years of austerity and, and there's no magic money tree. And and here we are. How do you how do you explain that to yourself? How do you make peace with the politics of here? <laughs> 
you really can't. Well, I, I really can't. And it's really difficult to comprehend. And it's like, my fear is, uh, yeah, the magic money tree exists, and it, and it, but my fear is that in the future we'll be told again that it really doesn't exist or they, they're putting it away for another Christmas, do you know? It's, maybe it's like a Christmas tree, only, only comes out at certain times. Mm-hmm. You know? So my fear is that or even though everybody knows it, the magic money tree exists and they can just print their own money. Uh, eventually, when when we get some semblance of normality, that, that tree will be put back and we, we'll just go back to a constant state of austerity because we'll be... They'll have the uh, they'll have the pandemic to blame, and nobody's even talking about Brexit anymore. And look what Brexit is doing to Ireland, you know. And these populist leaders just lie all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, I want to blame the leaders, but on some token, you have to blame the voters. I think. And I might be, you know, I might be losing some listeners here, but to me, I don't really care because I just think what is, what is, you know, what is fair is fair, and I think that the vote, the voters ourselves, need to take responsibility. I mean, the leaders can go up there; they can have the platforms, but we, we as the voting public, don't have to buy into it. We don't have to think, well, I'm not going through this problem, so I'm all right, Jack. That shouldn't be the that shouldn't be the case. And unfortunately it is. And people seem to forget that when you vote a government in it for four or five years, it's not just for six months, you know. It's like so it's a bit like people obviously want to vote for these people but they forget the consequences of their, their actions and like our Prime Minister he got majority of the slogan get Brexit done he didn't talk about any other policy or anything he just and that way he, he won a huge majority and to me, it just feels like, to me, everybody around me, just look here, people going, yeah, we can blame Boris as much as we like, but we put him there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, like I say, I'm not absorbing him of responsibility, I'm saying, but, you know, it's like, it's like the start raving lunatic by, they stand, but they don't get many, many votes. Why, you know, you know, it's the same sort of thing. Boris Johnson could be the leader of the start raving lunatic by, but it's it's got millions of votes. Mm-hmm. I don't. It doesn't. Maybe I'm not politically astute enough or aware enough as to why, but I 
on a really simplistic level, I can't understand it. On a human, like, spiritual, connective level, I can't, I understand that there's, you know, there's structures and all this, that, but as each individual human being, I just can't understand why we, why we would put this guy in charge of something that we know he's not up to the job. So why would we do that to ourselves? It just seems like an act of self-harm and an act of fuck you to everybody. But, but why all we say to people is, yeah, you can have a fuck you protest vote, but we have to live in this country. Yeah? We, yeah. Whichever country it may be, whether it be Brazil, whether it be UK, whether it be India, because don't forget, India's got the same sort of thing. Yeah. And there, there's no coincidence that where there's been these three populist leaders, uh, there's been massive COVID deaths, a massive, like, you know, the virus just keeps flaring up again. So it's like, I don't know, it's, I, I think people need to, we all collectively need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and think what is important. Because to me, it blows my mind that if we can't come together as the human race now, when the fuck can we? Yeah. So it, it just it just beggars belief in my opinion. It does. And I, I think it is, it's like um like thinking of here and austerity and and like you it's visceral, like on a personal level and what I can see happening around me and to to people I know and people I don't know, what that has done, the consequences of that. People have died. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of people yeah. um at the cruelty of for for what? You know, we this idea of setting up national debt and and stuff is like, well, I don't feel that, but what I feel is when you're closing the community centres and when you're um, there's no mental health services for people to access and when people's living allowances are continually and exhaustingly being questioned and having to prove it, you know, all these things are like very tangible and and real in a way where a lot of the rhetoric of like and the lies that are said to win are just they don't touch me. It yeah. is coming back. I, I'm surprised at people when it cannot be that simple on a human level, you know. And and it and what the what is the thing I wanted to say on this was that I don't think it's said often enough, and it should do, is the reason we had so many deaths is because of austerity. Why? Because those institutions and those kind of services that we had 10, 15 years ago would have been there to help people and stuff like that. It would have minimised, it wouldn't have solved it, but it would have put us in a much, we would have had a much, much more of a cushion against it. You know, we would have had a lot more social services, we would have had a lot more mental health services, loads of things. Instead of building on social infrastructure, we just get rid of it. 
and cut the surfaces. So now when, when we're when we're in the shit, we 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 have nowhere to go because there, there's no surfaces left. So I think the pandemic is just the just exasperated, highlighted all the holes in the government infrastructure of services where where unfortunately it's kind of exposed all the holes because when you've caught everything to the bone and things are just about working, all it takes is something like COVID to come along and it just de- destroys whole communities. And now I, I, in various different roles, talk to people in re- relatively high political institutions and they they all just come up with buzzwords like the buzzword now is inequality and I'm always saying that well you can say you want to improve inequality but until you connect what we're saying uh, as a community to the money there's no point was talking about inequality because you're just paying lip service to it all, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I don't want to be waffling and then, and I, you, you got me started now, so I'm just like... I think we're getting a bit five live. Yeah, no, we haven't got any crazy callers yet. Oh. Uh, yeah, so moving uh, moving on, on to the art, art world again, what would you say is the difference between you you obtaining funding in this country and to obtaining funding in in Brazil? Um, well, uh, I've, yeah, I mean, it's far from perfect. I think uh, a lot of funding for the arts, I suppose, and how to make a living. It's very competitive. And the only thing I think would ever work well it's like a universal basic income for for it but in the UK obviously there's we're the fifth richest country in the world there is an arts council there are public money going into arts organizations how much of that goes into artists and art I don't know I, I question that sometimes but in Brazil well well when actually it was before Bolsonaro when Tema was in power after um, Dilma, there was the coup against Dilma, they overnight cancelled the Ministry of Culture. It was just shut down. And that had a very direct consequence on many artists and collectives in the country. There are funding streams that you can apply for um, from the government, from private places. A lot of the banks, weirdly, uh, or perhaps not, to avoid tax have arts organizations in their names so it's really normal in a bank that there's also cinema art gallery and theater so this public building which is for all of us but it's for their to for them to not pay tax or for some you know to get the glory of their name over it so it's quite interesting um and with the pandemic and with the recession so the recession in brazil happened in a, later than in the UK of 2008, it happened in like 2014. And so since then, the cuts have 
affected as always the most vulnerable people and the arts have been one of the first things to go so funding is getting more competitive and and now with the pandemic I don't know how artists are going to survive it's really it's it's a really dire situation I mean this is a country where celebrities are paying for oxygen at the moment to send to the hospitals because the government isn't doing that so to have any kind of infrastructure around the arts feels like very low on the list. Really? Is that yeah. how, how bad it is? Yeah, yeah. And it's a country, you know, um, with so many natural resources and a wealth of culture and nature and stuff. And it's, it's kind of, it's every time I go back, it's a little bit worse than it was before people are living it's really hard hard place um but but as always um i think a a brazilian quality is this this resistance is really strong and it's also really an alive thing and i think there's this real i don't think it's positivity but i think there's this real sense of optimism in people and often that's the hardest hit and um and it is a country that was colonised and uh, the slavery that happened in Brazil is that still is stronger now that, or just as present as it was 500 years ago. This, this you know, I'm not going to say the word inequality here, <laughs> but, um, you know, at the same time, there's really exciting art things being made everywhere. I see it everywhere. So many great collectives and artists but I think it's as, as a way to survive, yeah, against it. I don't think that should be the way, but it's it's what's happening. And maybe it's yeah. always been the way. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It just I know it's probably difficult to explain, but it's really important for people such as myself to hear it and like to know what's going on on the other side of the world, you know, because mm-hmm. You can't see it and you don't hear about it that often. So you kind of don't think it's happening, but it, it quite mm-hmm. clearly is. And, you know, um, yeah. I, I know it's really hard. I can tell that it's really hard to like, I think, uh, explain it all, but it's, it's really valuable and really important that you do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it is. And I'm talking massive generalisations and trying to like sum up yeah. my very small experience yeah but to yeah I guess that's but, what it feels like but nothing in my opinion nothing beats lived experience mm. and you know people call people call themselves experts for a lot less put it that way yeah. people make a career out of saying they're an expert or something because they've read a few books or something like that. Until you've lived somewhere and you you're you're familiar with the way the whole structure works. I don't think especially in terms of the places you can call yourself an expert. Uh, and just to finish off, uh, go back to art again. Could you tell us a bit about the egg collective? Yeah. Eggs collective. Yeah. Yeah. Eggs collected. Sorry. Um. Yeah. It's. Uh. So I'm. I'm not in it, but I work with them on and off in projects now. 
and Leonie and Sarah that are in Eggs Collectives have just filmed a new piece of television for the BBC called Silky Hotel and I'm very excited to see what what that looks like and how that comes out so I did some work with them on the very early days of the script which was already making me laugh and uh, and it's going to be quite nice having left it for a few months to to see what what it is and um, but they're still making in Manchester uh, especially in this kind of digital realm of performance in online or in digital when do you think they'll be out do you know I don't know. Often it's, I'm always surprised how quickly these things turn around. So yeah. I, I think it could be within the spring still. All right. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say in closing um, before we go? Well, one of the projects that um, I, so I work with, I do produce in for Colectivo Capacel, who are a Brazilian connect, uh, collective. And one of the most important or exciting things that's happened to me over the last couple of years is working with them and, and bringing them to the to the UK. And that, so there is this sense of hope I have as well right now in the, this, the ruins of things. I, I'm seeing alternative ways, alternative knowledges, like what, who are the experts, indigenous people, um, people from the forests people from the land people marginalized people or activists queer people black people people of color I feel like there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening that feels like a moment to me that is feels like the tables are turning a little bit and that's not just in the arts I think I see that politically and around me and that gives me hope and through working with them but I think they're one of many many uh, have they got like a website or a facebook page i'm just yes. asking because if you send me a link we could put a link in the description and that way they can get hopefully better known or or i can get better or, or cripple stump can get better known yeah. <laughs> with them yeah, yeah, I can um, pass all links to X Collective, Hot Pants Romance, to yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so is that all you wanted to say on the last bit? Yeah, I think so. And I, 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 just wa- I just wanted to say a very big thank you to you for the bottom of my heart for having this conversation with me. Thank you from the bottom of my heart as well. I've really enjoyed it. Thank as, you. As I always do. Goodbye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.